Brandon said, our, our text uh, actually is, it's, I had him read verses 13 through 22, so 1 Peter 3, 13 through 22, but our text, the one I'm preaching on, is just verses 18 through 22. Um, a few weeks ago, I got a nonchalant email from Brandon asking me if I'd mind swapping preaching weeks with him. He chalked it up to a, a scheduling issue, just be easier for him. I said no problem without looking at the text that I was getting. Big mistake. Uh, hear the words of the great reformer and Bible scholar Martin Luther in commenting on this passage in particular here in 1 Peter 3. He says, this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle means. <laughs> Thanks, Brandon. Well, at least we know that if we were perplexed on hearing that passage read, and if we're perplexed on leaving, we're in good company. My three points this evening are the coming storm, the fire and flood, his suffering and ours. So first, the coming storm. Secondly, the fire and flood. And lastly, his suffering and ours. Let me pray briefly. Father, I thank you for being a speaking God who gives us your word and constantly who gave us the word made flesh, your own son. I pray that he would be glorified in what I preach, that he would be proclaimed his work for us, made clear that you would save us, that you would sanctify us tonight, that you would receive the glory. Lord God, touch our hearts and speak newness into them as you spoke into nothingness in the beginning and created all things. So I pray that you would speak new life this evening through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The Galveston flood of 1900 was the deadliest storm in American history. According to Eric Larson's account in Isaac's Storm, no one saw it coming. Days before it hit, the Washington Weather Bureau's men in Cuba said the storm was, quote, nothing to worry about. Larson details the scene days before disaster struck. The Gulf breeze cooled the city at nightfall. One of the most beautiful beaches in the world offered delightful surf bathing. And you saw everybody there in the afternoons bathing, promenading, or driving carriages on the smooth, crisp sands. The New York Herald had already dubbed the city the New York of the Gulf. But city leaders also knew there was only room on the Texas coast for one great city, and that they were in a winner-take-all race against Houston, just 50 miles to the north. As of 1900, Galveston had the lead. The year before, it had become the biggest cotton port in the country, and the third busiest port overall. Consulates in the city represented 16 countries, including Russia and Japan. And Galveston's population was growing fast. It now had electric streetcars, electric lights, local and long-distance telephone service, two domestic telegraph companies, three big concert halls, and 20 hotels, the most elegant being the Tremont, with 200 ocean-facing rooms, 
50 elegant rooms with private baths and its own electric power plant. What most marked the city was money. Eight-year-old Henry Cortez of Houston visited his grandmother in Galveston the day the storm hit. When he reached her house, quote, around lunchtime, he found a yard under two and a half feet of water. Even so, he said, the neighboring kids were out playing in wash tubs or homemade rafts. Throughout the city, children danced in the waters, built rafts, teased pets into leaping off porches. They converged on the beach. Downtown, it was business as usual. Later, with mournful clarity, Isaac wrote in his official report, those who lived in large, strong buildings a few blocks from the beach, one of whom was the writer of this report, thought, they, uh, thought that the, they could weather excuse me, the wind and tide. They were wrong. One man among many who hold up in his house once the gale descended describes his experience. He says, if a train had crossed the ceiling, it could not have made more noise. With most of the slate shingles gone, the rain struck bare wood. Driven by the wind, it penetrated deep into the plaster. It grew cysts in the wallpaper, which popped like firecrackers. At 7 p.m., a gust of wind blew out the front door in its frame. The blast caused everyone's ears to pop. Rain poured into the room. More plaster fell. The water rose high onto the second floor. Gusts of wind moving at speeds possibly as great as 150 miles per hour, perhaps much higher penetrated deep into the house. Palmer held tight to his son and braced his back against the bathroom door, he writes. His wife, May, hugged his neck with all her strength. Beams fractured, glass broke. Lumber ricocheted among the walls of the hallway outside the bath. The front half of the house tore loose. The Balkers stood in the bedroom, holding each other close as the wind peeled the house away. The bedroom disintegrated, the water rose, the house trembled and eased off its elevated foundation. It settled in deeper water. The water was up to Palmer's neck. He fought to keep Lee's head clear, and Lee asked, Papa, are we safe? Judson could not even see his son for the darkness. He felt the boy's small hands holding tight. His hands were cold. Maybe Judson did not have time to offer his son some reassuring lie. More likely, he could not speak for the great heave of sorrow that welled up within him after his son's question. He drew his son close, but could not draw him close enough. The roof stood up and fell upon the family. They went under the water together. Friends, the storm is coming whether we care to admit it or not. And yet many of us carry on business as usual, engaging at turns in frivolity of one kind or another. But all the same, we are all going under. The storm is coming, and Peter is sounding the alarm in this text. We would do well to listen, to spread the alarm, and to run to safety. He opens up, verse 18, my text and our text tonight, speaking of the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, in Peter's day, those were well-known categories in the ancient Near East, in, in ancient Greece, the righteous and the unrighteous. The righteous were law-abiding, 
They had a high degree of rectitude. They were upstanding, well thought of. They dispensed justice as they could. Of course, the unrighteous had none of these qualities. Um, the categories were clear enough to most people. Um, folks generally knew where they stood. In our, in our age, it's really no different. We have these two categories, and most of us would say, most of us would place ourselves in the category of, of the righteous. We, we don't break the law unless we're speeding, which most of us probably do a lot. But that doesn't really count. We're fairly law-abiding. We're decent folks. We're well thought of upstanding. Well, like I said, Peter, and as you read in the text, he does mention these categories, the unrighteous and the righteous, but he sinks the framework that we have set up for ourselves and that his audience, no doubt, um, 2,000 years ago had set up for itself. There are two camps, the unrighteous and the righteous, but unfortunately, we're all in one of them. And Jesus Christ alone is in the other. In his language, he says that there is righteous and there is unrighteous, and the righteous is singular. And he's referring to Christ, the Son of God, fully man. And the unrighteous is plural. And again, unfortunately, that's, that's all of us. So he just totally sinks our well-divided, clearly delineated category, and puts us all in the, in the camp of the unrighteous. So the flood is coming. There's no escape. No amount of, as we sang earlier, no amount of righteous deeds done can erase our unrighteousness. It doesn't work that way because God is just, and he can't look past sin, friends. We're all unrighteous, and the flood of God's wrath that came in Noah's day is coming again, this time in fire to clear out God's creation. Larson writes later in the book, quote, the hurricane had set a course toward Galveston soon after leaving Cuba and had stayed on that course ever since, as if it had chosen Galveston as its target. You and I are God's target, for we are the unrighteous that Peter writes about. The storm of God's justice, mind you, his justice, his fairness, his perfect need to do away with evil and injustice is coming for you and it's coming for me. So that's the coming storm. I want to move on now to the fire and the flood, point two. Okay. Strange text, again. I mean, Martin Luther's told us himself. He couldn't quite figure it out. It's, it's a rough one, but it's a good one. Noah's flood. Peter mentions Noah's flood. Why here? Why here in talking about Christ's sufferings and how they save us, how the righteous came for us, the unrighteous? Why, why jump in with Noah's flood and this talk of spirits in prison? Well, as far as Noah's flood goes, you know, it does seem a strange intrusion. Even some might say an editorial addition. I think I heard somebody in, in uh, reflecting on the text with me this week, actually, he said it almost seems like Peter fell asleep, <laughs> just put in some weird stuff around verse 19 and 20. In fact, it is, it is, it is highly apt. It is highly relevant. 
Let me give you one reason. In, in Peter's day, uh, Peter's day was much like Jesus' day. Peter's day it was much like Noah's day. Let me read to you the words of Jesus himself from Luke 17. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man, Jesus says. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage <clears throat> until the day when Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. In both ages, God has provided a way of escape. But precious few listened and took action. And in both ages, in Noah's and in Peter's, God's people were, were laughed at and they were persecuted for trusting in God's word. But only for a time. Another reason that I think Peter includes talk of Noah in this passage on Christians suffering and looking to the suffering of Christ and being encouraged is that for Noah and his family, again, obedient response to God's word of warning and the coming flood led to their deliverance from complete destruction. As it was in Noah's day, so it was in Peter's, and so it is in our own. There is no difference. And friends, the storm that is coming, the storm that hits when it comes, will be far more severe than that which wiped out the world in Noah's day. The howling gale of the furious wrath of God Almighty will make the Galveston flood look like a warm bath. Because the reckoning will be an eternal one and the suffering will not end. Peter begins this passage in verse 18 talking about the sufferings of Christ saying that he suffered to save us. He moves on a few verses later to say that baptism, in verse 21, he says, baptism saves us. Did y'all catch that? Did you kind of go, yeah, so did I. Baptism saves us. It seems a strange claim, but let me unpack it for you. First, it's written within the context of Christ's suffering for us that saved us. So it ties in, this baptism ties in to Christ's suffering and salvation. It has to. Secondly, Peter qualifies a statement, doesn't he? He follows it with, with a statement by saying, it's not the baptism, the rite of baptism, which washes water off of our skin. He speaks of something deeper, of, of the reality to which the sacrament of baptism points. But what? What is Peter speaking of that relates to Christ? What is this baptism that saves us? In Luke 12, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and seemingly out of nowhere, he breaks into this anguished outcry of soul. In Luke 12, 49 and 50, he says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now, Mark provides an even greater context. In Mark 10, verses 32 and following, he says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. 
and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And in three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? The baptism that Jesus anticipates here and that caused him to cry out with such distress in merely contemplating its approach was being plunged into the flood and the fire of the white-hot wrath of God against our sins. The tidal wave of God's justice was coming to do away with sin and evil, and it was coming straight for Christ. This is why he came. He came to take our place, yours and mine. Him for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. And though Christ embraced the cross, I think it is fair to say that the thought of facing this coming flood squarely and alone terrified him. So much that its contemplation caused him to sweat blood rather than saline hours before the cross in Gethsemane. In Luke 4, 18 through 19, Jesus announces his public ministry. He goes back to his hometown of Nazareth where he grew up, and he takes the scroll from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah, they say Isaiah in Britain. I've been living in Britain, sorry, apologies. Isaiah. I knew that was going to happen eventually. He takes Isaiah's scroll, and he, un, he unfurls it, and he reads from Isaiah. He reads this, quote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he closes it and he sits down. I want to tell you that what Jesus leaves out, what he doesn't say, is every bit as powerful and relevant to us, especially tonight, as what he does say. He's quoting from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. He reads the whole of verse 1, and then he reads the first line of verse 2, and then he stops. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, boom, period, and he sits down. What did he leave out? Well, the next line reads this way. It reads, and the day of vengeance of our God. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and then line 2 and the day of vengeance of our God. And that's the bit that Jesus leaves out. Why? Why? He left it out because it's why he came. He came to face the storm himself in our place. He came to endure the vengeance of God against our injustice, our unrighteousness, our sin. But for those who will not hide in him for those who decide to go it on their own and to take their chances and to reject Christ let's be forthright that day is coming 
if Christ didn't take it for you, you'll face it on your own. The day of the Lord, God's vengeance against sin and evil is coming like a flood. And when it hits, none will withstand its furious force. None. Jesus endured the fire of God, his wrath against our sin on that cross. This was his baptism. His self-chosen plunge into the flood and fire of God's anger against sin in the place of all who look to him for salvation. But for everyone who doesn't, who chooses to look to themselves instead, the flood of God's fiery wrath will consume them forever. If we look back at verse 18, the first verse of, of my text, 1 Peter 3, 18, again, that phrase, he came, the righteous for the unrighteous. He came for us, him for us. Why? We've talked some about why. Well, if you look at that whole verse, it's like a bullseye. In the center of the bullseye, you have these parallel statements on either side, but the center of it um, is the phrase, that he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. I got curious in looking at this text um, I got curious about reentry space, reentry spacecraft. All right, so let me tell you a little bit, a little bit about reentry spacecraft. Um, you're out in the space. You got to get back. You got to get back through the Earth's atmosphere. Well, to do that, you have to endure two things. You have to endure massive amounts of G-force and of heat. So, what is the reentry spacecraft designed for? It's designed to endure both of those things. So. G-force, if you have enough of it, it can, it, it can just crumple steel like, like paper or like aluminum foil. A fragile human payload unprotected from that would just be crushed instantly. Um, again, heat's a problem. So temperatures on re-entry through the atmosphere of the Earth reach uh, 2,691 degrees Fahrenheit. The tiles that are put on the outside of the craft glow red hot. They burn, they turn black, some crack and some fall off. The craft has to obviously withstand this intense pressure and force, and it does, if it's well designed, in order to keep its passengers nice and cool, safe, alive, and so they can land in one piece. On the cross, Jesus Christ, Peter is telling us here, Jesus Christ was that reentry spacecraft for us. He brought us to God, but to do that, he had to burn up. He didn't just do away with our sin. He brought us, as we sang earlier again, into right relationship. He brought us before the Father and presented us spotless, having paid for all of our sins. He brought us back into relationship with the one that we had distanced ourselves from, with the one with whom it was impossible now to interface because I, I can't do enough good stuff to undo what I've done, you see. Jesus took care of that. He's our, he's our reentry spacecraft. He has brought us to God. I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Malcolm, Malcolm Gladwell. I'm guessing a lot of you have read some of his stuff in this room. 
I couldn't find it. I didn't look too hard, but I, I believe this illustration, it's a true story, is in one of, his, one of his books. There was a crash. I believe it happened on American soil. Um, there was a crash, an air, a big airliner crash, and it was, everything was just destroyed. There were no survivors. Hardly anything was left. But there was a chair, I believe, and within that chair, there was a little girl strapped into the chair, and she was not only alive, but almost unscathed. And she was, she was the only survivor of the airline crash. And after probably lots of um, gently, you know, bringing her out of that wreckage and taking care of her, they got her to talk. And they asked her, I mean, it was a mystery, how did you survive? And she told them. She said, my mom put her, <clears throat> put her knees on the seat and covered me with her body. So back, back to the fuselage, back to the front of the plane, and just covered me. And um, mom burned up, but baby, little, little girl, was safe. This is what Peter's telling us Christ has done for us. This is, this is the righteous going in for the unrighteous, making us righteous in the process and getting us to God. This is Jesus covering us. So, so we've looked at the coming storm. We've looked at the fire and the flood. We've looked at the baptism of Jesus and what it means for us and how he has brought us to God. I want to close with Point three, his suffering and ours. His suffering and ours. Okay, the elephant in the room is, we've dealt with the baptism bit, but that's not the hardest part of this passage. The problem verse is really verse 19. 1 Peter 3, 19. Talks about him dying in the flesh, rising in the spirit, verse 18, and then it transitions into, in which he went and preached or proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And then it, it's just tough, okay? But I actually, I told someone this earlier, I actually phoned a friend. <laughs> once, once, once I found out that I had this text, I looked at it, spent some time with it, and I decided to phone a friend. I've never done that before, um, but, I, but I did for this, for this text. Uh, my, my old, one of my fathers of the faith, a dear friend, uh, systematics theology professor, Called him up and just said, you got to help me, sir. I'm dying here. What is this text about? And he helped me to see something that I definitely think, even if it doesn't solve all of our problems, it's, it's the thrust that Peter's getting at here in this, in this difficult but true word. So verse 19, Christ rose in the spirit in which he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Okay, did he go up or down? Was he going down to hell to preach? And what were the spirits? Was he going up? Was it during his ascension when he was resurrected and he was going back up to the Father? Is that when he preached victory to the spirits that were rebellious, to angels, to demons? Well, if you look at verses 21 and 22, there's a frame that these verses make because it talks about Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. So, the text talks about Christ coming to save us, but
but it ends on the upswing, right? With Jesus not staying dead, but rising from the dead and then ascending to be seated at the helm of the cosmos, to be at the nerve center of the world where he sits in victory as a man representing us with the Father in complete control. So the, the verb in verse 19 in which he went and the verb at the end of the passage, Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven, it's the same verb. So what Peter's doing is he's framing this text. And regardless of exactly what he's saying, I think the takeaway point is highlighted by this frame that Peter gives us. And it's that the baptism of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, won him total creational authority as a man. And he announced that victory, whether going down or up, it really doesn't matter. We can't resolve that here. He announced his victory through the cross, again, friends, for us and for anyone who would come to him in faith. He announced that victory to all of creation, to rebellious spirits, whatever they may be. And we've seen how that ties in, in Peter's mind, and biblically, to Noah's, to spirits in Noah's day, even if we haven't resolved all the difficulties. This victory, this resurrection, and this ascension to the seat of power, again, as a man, Jesus had always sat in power, but never before as the God-man, never before as a man. And now in him, we who believe in him sit with him, represented with him on his throne in victory. So this is what Peter tells us Jesus' suffering yielded. And because of his death on our behalf, our suffering will yield the same thing if we are found in him by faith. Okay? Suffering buries the acorn out of which a tree of strength and beauty grows. It happened with Jesus, and we who trust in him, because of his cross, he allows our suffering to be the primary vehicle that releases the power of his death and his resurrection to a watching and a weary world. Our suffering, by faith in his cross and resurrection, is producing newness of life in people, throughout creation. It's establishing his kingdom as his church suffers well by looking at his cross. This is what Peter is telling us. Suffering releases the power of Christ's death and resurrection like nothing else in our lives, friends. As you suffer by faith in him with your eyes fixed on what he has done for you, you will feel his nearness like never before. And you will draw men to him like never before. You will be made like him in a way that nothing else in this earth can affect. No prosperity. No ease. This is the power of the cross, of Christ's baptism for you and in you. And this is why Peter inserts these five verses, I think, on Christ's suffering into a larger text, which is why I had the previous verses, starting in verse 13, read, into a larger text, really, that's an encouragement to Christians in Peter's day who were probably, it was probably early 60s AD, a generation after, 30 years after Christ's death and resurrection. These Christians were um, alive during Nero's reign. He was a terrible emperor. He hated Christians. And if this dating is right, within a few years, two or three years from now, Nero would start to take Christians and light them on fire alive to light his garden parties. 
things haven't changed. Weeks ago, enemies of God decapitated 21 Christians for their faith, right? So around the world, things really haven't changed for Christians. But for us, we live in this protected bubble, and we're grateful for the protection, aren't we? But sometimes it seems that we're asleep at the wheel a bit. However, we suffer. We suffer. Every single person in this room is suffering in some way. I don't want to minimize that. We suffer quickly in a few ways as inhabitants of a cursed creation. Just the fact that we're here in a broken creation, we suffer. Uh, Cancer, loneliness, depression, anxiety. We suffer as sinners because of our sins. Lust, greed, envy, arrogance. We suffer for our faith in Christ. We may lose a job or a friend or the good opinion or the perceived good opinion of someone we admire or perhaps someone we just fear and don't really like that much. We forego things. By degrees, we spend our money and our time and our energies on Christ's kingdom. Again, by degrees, not as often or as much as we should, but but we do. Rather than investing all these things into our own kingdom that will surely perish. So, So he is our primary concern more and more, and this means privation in various forms, and it means suffering in this life. But what Peter is saying, I pray you hear, that as you suffer, suffer well with your eyes fixed on what he has done for us in his suffering, that he has brought us to God, that he has done the most powerful, the most significant work in the history of the cosmos that will ever be done through suffering. And as we, by faith, are, in, are found in Christ, we are brought to the Father, pure and justified, and our suffering because of the cross produces this eternal weight of glory, these real and imperishable things that we will be able to enjoy and work with and see glorify God and bless other people in the new creation forever. The storm is coming. Christ went under so you wouldn't have to. And so that in him, the storms of your life, uh, you can weather them well with a hope that cannot be shaken. I want to plead with you to hide in him if you haven't. To run back to him if you have but you strayed. To fix your eyes on him if you are doing that, to continue in that vein. To direct others to him, especially in your suffering. People... Watch us in our sufferings in a particular way. For he will never leave you nor forsake you. And he is with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen? Amen. Let me pray.